Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton again from Johns Hopkins. This is going to be part two of our lecture on virtual colonoscopy principles and techniques. In the first part, we talked about why we do virtual colonoscopy and reviewed some of the literature. In this section, we're going to be talking about how we do it. First of all, patient preparation is very important and bowel cleansing is essential. Bowel cleansing really consists of three parts. First, diet, then we have our catharsis, and then we have tagging. So diet usually consists of clear liquids, or sometimes people use a low-fiber diet, such as Nutri-Prep, which is a little kit of food that you can eat from EZM. Personally, I just go with the clear liquids. Catharsis, uh, you have a variety of choices. You can use Go Lightly and Bisicodal tablets, Phosphosoda and Bisicodal tablets, or Magnesium Citrate and Bisicodal tablets. Now, Go Lightly is actually an excellent cathartic agent. The problem is it's a lot to drink. So it's four liters of basically a terrible tasting liquid. It's really an excellent prep, but the issues are with compliance. So a lot of people won't finish the whole four liters. Some people are using Miralax now, which is also polyethylene glycol, like go lightly, but it comes in a powder and you can mix it in fluid. I don't have a lot of experience with that, but it may be something that's um, an alternative to using go lightly. Phosphosoda. I like phosphosoda. Um, usually now, if you're going to use it, use 45 milliliters, not the double dose. It shouldn't be used in patients with renal dysfunction or patients on certain cardiac medications. There's definitely better compliance with phosphosoda than go lightly because it's a smaller amount of bad tasting liquid. The problem with phosphosoda, especially when we were using double dose, is that there were reports of acute phosphate nephropathy in patients without renal dysfunction. And this was always after double dose, so 90 milliliters. So they were patients typically with some risk factors like on ACE inhibitors or NSAIDs, dehydrated patients, etc. This was an article uh, last year by Kim et al., and they showed that it was just as effective using the 45 milliliters instead of the double dose, and that they still had good cleansing. So if you want to use phosphosoda, make sure you screen the patients for those risk factors, and make sure you only use the single dose. Again, if you look at studies, there's better compliance with the phosphosoda than with the polyethylene glycol because it's a smaller amount of bad tasting liquid. And then with phosphosoda, they need to drink a lot of water, but it's easier to drink a gallon of water than a gallon of go lightly. Magnesium citrate is also a possibility to be used. We used to use that when we did a lot of barium enemas. I personally don't use that. I use go lightly almost in everybody. In addition to the uh, clear liquids and the cathartic agents, you need to give tagging agents. So there's two types. There's the barium agents and then the iodine agents. So basically this tags the fluid and it tags the, school, uh, the stool to decrease the false positive. So what we use is tagatol, which is small volume of um, a high density barium agent, or you could use a dilute barium agent like 2%. Um, and that's what Perry Pickard uses, and we'll go over that. That's a higher volume, 250 cc's. But you want to give some barium agent to mix with the residual stool. And then almost everybody also gives an iodine-based agent. So usually gastrographin, or you could use Omnipeg, for example, and you give it before bedtime, and this tags the residual fluid. So with the stool tagging, we give multiple doses of the dilute barium. So that's the tagatol. That's a high-density barium, and that tags with residual solid stool. And then 60 cc's of gastrographin or 50 cc's of omnipake before bed. And again, that tags the residual fluid. The tagatol is a barium sulfate suspension in three little bottles, so small quantities that are taken basically at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they mix with the solid stool. So if there's residual stool, it will turn white. So you can see in this patient, you can see this dense white stool that's been tagged 
within the colon, and here you can see the endoluminal view. The liquid will also be tagged, so it will appear white, so if there's any polyps inside the liquid, you'll be able to see it. There has been a little bit in the literature of doing a cathartic free CTC. So that would be the idea of maybe you don't have to clean the colon at, at all. So this is a study from this year, 2008. And what they did is they took patients with known or suspected colon neoplasms and they drank a lot of barium over time, um, but they didn't do any bowel cleansing, so no catharsis. And they did the CTC in a standard fashion and they looked, the, so the data sets were reviewed by two of three experienced radiologists and then re-reviewed after stool subtraction. And what they found is 131 adenomatous polyps in the 114 subjects. And per subject basis, if you look at that, without the stool subtraction, the sensitivity for greater than a centimeter was actually very good, between 84 and 93%. If you did the stool subtraction, that went up to 93 to 94%. And the double reading resulted in detection of 87% of patients with a 6 to 9 millimeter adenomas and 96% of patients with adenomas greater than a centimeter. So this is something really on the cutting edge that maybe we'll be able to develop a technique with such good tagging that and stool subtraction that you won't necessarily have to do colon cleansing. So how we do it here at Hopkins is the patient calls our coordinator, she takes some information and gets some history, explains the bowel prep, and then we FedEx it to the patient ahead of time, and that way we know that they get everything they need. So typically this would be a prescription for the polyethylene glycol or the Go Lightly. They would get Tagatol, we use two bottles instead of three, Bisicotal tablets, a 60cc bottle of GastroView, or now we're using a 50cc bottle of OmniPig 350, uh, instructions, and then a contact number. I wanted to put in here Perry Pickard's prep because he's the one who has the best results uh, regarding screening studies. And what he does is the day before, he has people drink 45 milliliters of sodium phosphate. That's the phosphosoda single dose. Then that evening, they drink 250 cc's of 2% barium. And then before bedtime, they drink the uh, gastrographin. And again, this is going to be clear liquids the whole day as well. So that's kind of a streamlined prep that most people can tolerate. Okay, in addition to the colon cleansing, we have to insufflate the colon. The colon has to be well distended. So that can be either air or carbon dioxide, and it could be manual or electronic insufflation. Now, in addition to the colon insufflation, you may want to consider using glucagon. It's actually pretty controversial. Some people say it helps. Some people say it doesn't make any difference. If you're going to give it, it's one milligram subcutaneously, 10 minutes prior to the study. And the theory is it will relax the colon and let people tolerate more colon distension. It is added invasiveness and it's subcutaneous injection, but most people can tolerate that. There's very small side effects, um, hyperglycemia being the main ones. You just have to be careful in brittle diabetics. And it is contraindicated in people with conditions such as insulinoma or pheochromocytoma, which are you know extremely rare. Um, it doesn't really add to the duration of the study. You need to give it 10 minutes ahead of time, but it usually takes people that long to change and get in the room. And then it does cost, here at Hopkins, it's $75 for one milligram. Okay, this is a picture of the pump that we use. So you could use room air and use a manually insufflate the colon, but if you can do the pump, then you can use carbon dioxide. And the advantage of using carbon dioxide is that it's absorbed very quickly. And so the patient feels back to normal by the time they leave the department. If you use room air, using a couple liters of air, and the patients tend to be very uncomfortable and have gas pain for several hours afterward. 
This is a study that looked at patient-controlled room air insufflation versus the pump. So for the room air in this study, they had the patients actually insufflate um, the colon themselves. So they held the little um, syringe and inflated the colon. They compared that with the automatic CO2 delivery system, and they found that the CO2 was tolerated better than room air and gave better distension. So what we do is we use the insufflator. So we use the pump. We put the patient left lateral decubitus position, put in the rectal tube, and inflate the balloon. And then you start the pump, and you set the pump to a certain pressure, and the colon will automatically inflate. And if the patient loses air, then it will automatically reinflate. So once the patient has about a liter and a half, then they turn the patient supine and do the topogram to make sure that there's enough air. The image on the left shows you that the left colon is not well distended with air. So we just waited a few minutes, and then you tope again, and now it's better distended. Then we take the supine acquisition, turn the patient prone, we keep the tube in, and we place pillows under the patient's chest. And that will take some of the pressure off the transverse colon. And then we scan the patient prone. If the patient can't tolerate the prone position, then they can you can do decubes or even oblique. But you just need two different positions. Then basically we turn off the pump, deflate the balloon, and remove the tube. And then I've recently added this limited acquisition through the rectum. You have to be very careful of low rectal lesions because they could be hidden by the tube or the balloon. And it's very easy to remove it at the end of the study and just do a very limited acquisition through the rectum without the balloon and tube. Very similar to barium enema. At the very end, we used to remove the tube and do a cross-table lateral. So that's our prone topogram. And then on the next image, you see prone image. And you can see that on the prone, the transverse colon is completely collapsed because the patient is lying on their stomach. So you want to avoid that. So on the prone position, try to put pillows under the chest so that there's not so much pressure on the stomach. You're going to use a multi-detector scanner. Most people are at least using 16 slice. We use our 64 slice. You really want to have submillimeter collimation isotropic data. So what we use is our 0.6 millimeter collimators. We make one millimeter slices every 0.8 millimeters. Very short breath hold between 10 and 15 seconds, so everybody can tolerate that. You definitely want to decrease the radiation dose. So in this case, we're using 50 MAS. So we use 50 MAS for the um, supine and 50 MAS for the prone. I'm actually thinking of decreasing the MAS on the prone even more. You can go as low as 20, really, and decrease the radiation dose. Now, the problem is that when you decrease the radiation dose that much, the extraclonic structures become very grainy. But remember, these are healthy patients you're screening in, so I think it's reasonable to decrease the dose even more. And plus, you're not going to be looking at the liver and other organs on the prone anyway. But if you're using uh, 50 MAS for both acquisitions, you have a total dose of 6.9 milligrams. So to put that in perspective, the annual background radiation is 3 millisieverts or 3 milligray. So it's worth two years of background radiation, and I think that's an acceptable radiation dose. But still, like I said, we can cut the radiation dose more, especially on the prone. Uh, for a long time now, it's already been proven that even though you decrease the radiation dose significantly, that you maintain your diagnostic performance. And that's because polyps are soft tissue lesions in an air-filled structure, so there's a normal high contrast. And so that even in this study, they decreased it from 140 MA to 70 MA, and they, at that time, were using a, a thicker collimation, but even then, they were able to maintain their diagnostic accuracy. Here was a study published last year, dose reduction and image quality in MDCT colonography using tube current modulation. So you know some scanners now have the ability to modulate the tube current automatically based on the patient thickness. And so they had 80 patients that underwent virtual colonoscopy using 16 slice MDCT, 
uh, 40 patients. They used 100 KVP and 120 effective MAS for supine and 40 effective MAS for prone. And the other 40 patients were scanned using the tube current modulation. And what they found was that the radiation dose was significantly lower in the group with the tube current modulation. And basically it was, you know, a third less. And there was no difference in the image noise or quality of the study. So you really have to decrease the radiation dose either by the tube modulation uh, the tube current modulation or just cutting the MAS. You always have to scan the patient twice. So you can't get away, even if the supine images look great, you still have to scan them prone. Um, in this study, 59% of the scans were adequate for polyp detection using only the prone or the supine. But when you use, put both of them together, then 87% of the scans had adequate distension because certain parts of the colon are better distended in one view versus the other. So it's very, very important to make sure you have at least two chances to get a well-distended segment. This was a very nice article by Judy Yee in 2003, and she looked at that very... Um, question. So for instance, if you just looked at the supine images, you really only find half the lesions. If you just look at the prone, you only find half the lesions. But when you look at them together, then you find a higher percentage of lesions. So even if you look at the supine images and you think it's completely normal, you still have to look at the prone. Another reason why two position helps is that if there's fluid or something else obscuring a part of one segment, once you flip the patient over, the fluid will flip as well, and then you'll be able to see the polyp. Now that we use tag fluid, it isn't as much of a problem, but you know that certain parts of the colon are better distended in one view versus the other. So for example, the transverse colon is almost always better distended in the supine than the prone, whereas the rectum is going to be better distended in the prone. If there's a segment of the colon that is not well distended, distended, let's say you're almost finished and you think the sigmoid isn't well distended, then you might want to add a third acquisition and get an oblique view, so a left uh, side up view for the sigmoid colon, or if the right colon isn't well distended, then you might do left side down, right side up. So your goal is to have the colon completely distended. So if there's a segment that you're having trouble distended, you want to add another scan. Even though it's adding a little bit of radiation, remember these are low dose scans and you want to be able to have a diagnostic study. Another reason why changing position helps um, is that stool will flip sometimes. So, for example, if a patient comes down from conventional colonoscopy, they won't have had the tagging. So they're up in colonoscopy. For some reason, they can't complete the colonoscopy. They come to you. They will not have taken the standard tagging. So the stool will not be white. So you have to use other... Um, you have to use other clues to figure out the difference between a polyp and stool. So in this example, you can see on the left side of the screen, the patient is prone. So the stomach is down. And then on the right side of the screen, the patient is supine. And you can see that that lesion flipped. So it was on the anterior surface on the prone, but it's on the posterior surface on the supine. So that means it flipped from one side to the other. So it's just some stool that's mobile. Now, Remember that polyps can move too, especially if they're on a stalk. So you, it's not that simple. So you do have to look around and make sure it's not a polyp on a stalk. And also be careful about things moving. Sometimes the colon is different in orientation. So one segment may be slightly different from one view versus the other due to differences in distension, or especially in the right colon can be mobile. So before you convince yourself that something flipped, from one position to another, you want to make sure that the colon has not changed orientation or positioning. So it becomes a little bit more complicated. In our next lecture, we're going to be talking, talking about how we interpret it and some of the pitfalls. So to summarize this section of principles and techniques, 
Um, I want, uh, we reviewed good bowel cleansing and tagging is essential. Also adequate colon distension is crucial. So you need really, if you want to do a lot of these, it's worth the investment to get the electronic insufflator and use CO2. These are low dose scans, 50 MAS should be the maximum that you use. And actually you could probably cut it a little bit more than that. A lot of people are using 20 MAS now. You may want to consider giving glucagon to relax it. I personally like glucagon and people seem to tolerate it very well. You need at least two positions, prone and supine or decubitus. You can add a third position if you need to better distend one segment. And then you may want to consider doing what I've recently done is that the very end of the study, deflating the balloon, removing the tube, and just imaging the lower rectum so you don't miss some of those low rectal lesions. Hey, thank you for your attention.